right, everyone. Hey, please stay standing. Uh, we're going to have our scripture reading. Man, so, so good to see everyone here. Um, yes. Welcome, you guys. Thanks so much for being here. We stand for the reading of God's word because it's just a, it's a, it's a way to give our sacred attention and pay attention to just how we are in the hearing of God's word. So Don, one of our elders, is going to read today for us. Good morning. So yes, I have the honor of reading, so I will proceed. <laughs> Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in a view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Have a seat. So, Father, we invite you by your spirit to come to us today. And we just seek to, to be transformed by your word. We want you, God, to shape us, form us from the inside out. And we just wait on you now, Holy Spirit, to come in power. Lord Jesus, help everything about this gathering to bring you glory and praise. And if there's anything that you don't want me to say or you want me to say, God, I just pray that you would direct my mind and my heart to do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, welcome back to our mini-series on community that we're calling Live Together. Um, if we touch on something that like strikes a nerve with you today, I think that's simply because we're addressing some things that are like deep cultural scripts that the Lord wants to address in us, please know it's all coming from a place of love. And where we end today is on an extremely hopeful note of what is possible as we devote ourselves to lives together. So Dr. Richard Plass and James Cofield in their amazing book, The Relational Soul, write this. At the core of our being is this truth. We are designed for and defined by our relationships. We were born with a relentless longing to participate in the lives of others. Fundamentally, we are relational souls. So in an affluent community like Bend, where all of our basic needs are met, whether you are thriving or failing to thrive probably comes down to the quality of your relationships, your relationship with God and your relationship with everyone else. And if you were here last week, you may remember that in the church in the West, I think has just made a unfortunate mistake by just trying to copy and paste Jesus's vision for church on top of our existing cultural paradigms of individualism and consumerism and a bunch of things like that. And what you get as a result is just a bad mixture 
of secular humanism with some parts of the way of Jesus, and it ends up not working. And there's lots of people in the church today or who are in the active deconstruction of their faith that are just disillusioned by some of the scriptures that we just read. We think that that's needless, and instead what we're asking God to do is to progressively replace our individualism over our lifetime through relationships of agape and through a practice that we call community. And I realize, I appreciate that for many of us, this kind of sounds like a stressful idea, particularly those of you who've been around the block a few times. Lots of us are feeling lonely and sort of tired already. I had several meetings with some of you this last week who had that exact reflection after the first uh, teaching in this series. And so to you, the thought of doing more feels like an uphill climb that we just don't have energy or time for, and maybe you're like afraid of being let down by Christians all over again. However, we think the answer is that there's tons of really good news, that we don't actually have to do a bunch more. We're not actually asking you to spend every night here at the church or some crazy thing like that. What we're inviting you into is to actually slow down and and to do less and to follow the example laid out by Jesus. Here's what I mean. Jesus organized his relational life in this way. He had a ministry to the masses or to the multitudes. He had his disciples. He had his 12 apostles. And then he had his inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And we just want to pattern our life after Jesus uh, and his relational sphere. So what we recommend is that you perform a relational audit and to embrace your limits as a human where we are kind to all people, kind to our neighbors, invested in our friends, and then we learn the skills of devotion for community and we cultivate intimacy with our companions. Now, in the modern West, we tend to overload our emotional bandwidth with our neighbors and friends, people at the top of that triangle. And by that, I just mean we have way too many weak ties. Uh, because they're the only relationships we really know how to do. But at the same time, our society is not teaching us the skills of devotion that results in the kinds of relationships that we long for and read about in the scriptures. So although we're surrounded by people, many of us still feel a deficit of companionship and true love. And at Riverbend, the goal is the opposite. We want to become an alternative society right in the epicenter of individualism. And for that, we think we need a culture shift that begins with all of us incorporating a practice from the way of Jesus that we call community. And again, we want to take the pressure off and set very realistic expectations for us. Because unless you grew up in the village north of Brazil, like my friend Ali did, you're probably not a master of communal life. We come from an individualistic society, and so we need to have grace for ourselves, and we just simply practice community. And as we practice community over time, the Lord Jesus will mature us and grow us, which is today's topic. We want to explore how community is not only the place where we find belonging and the relationships that we long for, community is also the context for how we are transformed into the image of Jesus. Look again at Romans 12, verse 2. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Okay, hopefully by now those words are like deeply ingrained in you and in your soul. And the basic premise is this. Contrary to popular sort of sarcastic, fatalistic belief, People can actually change for the better. You can be a more kind and patient and gracious and loving person 
through a, through a process that's called discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus. We talk about this all the time. Sometimes we use the language of spiritual formation. And so for some of you, the beginning of this will just be review, but here's our basic theory of discipleship, or if you like, spiritual formation. We are all being formed into the image of someone or something. Your mom told you this growing up. You become like who you hang out with, right? And so we believe that we, we don't actually have a choice about whether or not we're formed, but we do have a choice about who we are formed by. And the wisdom of Romans 12 is pointing out the reality by default, we are being formed into the image of our culture or according to the pattern of this world to rip off the biblical language. For example, next month, 75% of you will be wearing a Patagonia mini puff. It's just a reality. Saying that doesn't make me a prophet, it just makes me someone with basic observational skills, and I've lived through like 10 winters here in Bend. We're all being influenced by the people around us, we tend to wear the same stuff. As much as we like to say we're super like non-conforming, very unique, whatever kind of people, the reality is that we're still pretty much monkey see, monkey do. That's just the reality of our species. Did that hurt your feelings? I'm sorry if that hurt your feelings. So if we're going to become like Jesus in our culture, we need to be transformed. And that's what it means to be an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus. And um, you wouldn't be here unless you were at least partially on board with that or maybe all the way. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say transform yourself into the image of Jesus because we cannot do it by ourselves. It says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a very important thing that the masters of spiritual formation have pointed out um, very, a, a lot over the years. In other words, when we are being transformed, it is something that is being done in us by God. So and it happens not through information transfer or the reading of a lot of good books. It comes through practicing the teachings of Jesus. And it comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. It happens over time. And it's necessary that we have the right conditions. Robert Mulholland, in his amazing book uh, called Invitation to a Journey, probably has the most complete definition of spiritual formation. He defines spiritual formation in this way. It is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. You could tell he just basically ripped that from Romans 12 too. Uh, spiritual formation is not an event in time, a moment in time, it's a process. And Jesus is the one that we are wanting to become like. It's not me or your mentor in college or your favorite YouTube pastor. It's Jesus that we're all following. And our transformation is not a personal wellness journey or something like that. The whole thing is about me or you becoming like Christ so that we can give our lives away in service to the kingdom and to the people of God. So most of that is more or less review, I'm sure. But now notice what comes the very next line in Romans 12. Immediately, Paul goes from like a manifesto of being formed into the image of Jesus straight into instructions for belonging in the family of believers. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Think of yourself instead with sober judgment. You're not your like, own person here. You belong to the body of Christ, and you have a responsibility to others, and you're dependent on each other and the people around you. Love must be sincere. Be devoted to one another in love. Practice hospitality. Literally from here, this line forward through the end of the letter, it's like another four chapters. The whole thing is instructions for the community of love. 
Why do you think that is? I think it's because community is an essential condition for how God, through the Spirit, changes us. It's an essential condition for how God, through the Spirit, changes us. We practice the way of Jesus, things like prayer and Sabbath and generosity and things like that, over time and in the context of community. And that is how the Lord wants to form us, is through this paradigm. So if you take community out of the equation, you're missing a major part of how God designed you to be formed or to grow. So following the way of Jesus is not just some individualistic quest, that's just a hangover that we have from our cultural ideology. Joseph Hellerman writes this in his, I think, uh, top five book on community that's been written in the last hundred or so years. He writes this, people who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through often messy, the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow together and thrive together or we do not grow much at all. We all know people who are consumed by spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. All right, so get the book and read it. Uh, Trust me, (laughs) worth your time. Joseph Hellerman, When Church Was Family. I think the metaphor of a tree is super helpful. Let's have a thought experiment for a moment. Imagine if I told you I wanted to grow an orange tree, and I've got an orange seed in my hands, and I want to grow unlimited oranges, so I go into my backyard, and I just plant the seed enthusiastically. When can I expect to have a harvest of oranges? Never. Never. Exactly. In Central Oregon, it's just not possible. Why? Soil conditions, temperature, humidity, and probably a bunch of other factors that I don't understand. So we, 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 here we like grow things like sagebrush and juniper, which are fine, but they're definitely not oranges. I cannot expect to plant an orange seed and harvest oranges in central Oregon because the environment is inhospitable to growing oranges. And no amount of like replanting and watering is going to do us any good unless we change the environment. The environment needs to change. So the individual nomadic environment is an ecosystem It's like trying to follow Jesus. It's kind of like trying to plant orange seeds in central Oregon. It just is never going to produce the results that we need. It's just the cultural paradigm that we grew up in isn't suitable for maturity in Christ. So stable community is the right soil or the right environment for spiritual growth to take place. And again, to double down for a moment and get you to kind of see what maybe I see as a pastor here in Central Oregon. I've been pastoring here for about seven years now. 
And Bend is a really unique place, even to the rest of, uh, of the West Coast. Grace and I first moved here in 2010, and we've been here longer than most people at this point. Very few people are actually from Bend. Most people move here. And this is just my anecdotal experience, but it feels like Bend is the place where people move when they want to curate the ideal situation for themselves. Like, I want to work 20% less and I want to get 40% more sun and 30% more play and a lot fewer demands and less time in traffic and a garage full of recreational equipment and like a bougie late model all-wheel drive vehicle and like I'm just going to have the perfect life for myself here. Here's the proof of my theory, if you don't believe me. The degree to which people from Bend complain about the weather is insane. People in Portland never complain about the weather because it's always raining, but here we have an expectation that it's going to be good. If it's Christmas Day and snow is not actively falling outside, people from Bend throw a tantrum. I'm seriously, you probably see this. Well, there's snow in the mountains, right? Like it snowed three days ago. At least the, the snowpack is like 150% of normal. That's good for our rivers and lakes, right? And people are like, no, it's like it's not snowing out my living room window when it's Christmas Day and I'm drinking my cocoa and opening my stocking or something like that. To which I say, yeah, you cannot call down winter vibes on command. I guess you did get ripped off this year. You didn't get the snow you hoped for. It's a little bit embarrassing to admit that's how we kind of deal with uh, the weather, and that's how, kind of how we feel about life. We should be able to tailor it and fine-tune it and tweak it to exactly the kind of lifestyle that I think I want. This is the fallout of what philosophers would call the abyss of freedom. When we have all the options, we get lost in those options. And we assume the reason why we're still not satisfied is the few things that are still outside of our control. We're glad you're here. I love snow as much as the, as the next guy. But that's, that's a myth that's not actually going to result in the flourishing that you crave. No amount of tweaking the finer details of your life is going to produce a perfect situation for you. The problem isn't actually situational at all. It's actually a matter of the heart. And the Lord wants to reform you. And this is how people in the developing world, Latin cultures, African cultures, can live with dirt floors and tin roofs for their houses, but they can tend to be way more content and happy than a 10-year-old or 20-year-old who grew up in Northwest Crossing. The reality is that there is something else besides our standard of living that contributes to our flourishing. And according to the vision of the Bible, your well-being, your flourishing, has much more to do with your interior life than it does with anything else. And here's the greater point. The same is true within the Christian community. We cannot curate community based on our personal preferences and consumer whims. Jesus is the one who curates our community. For example, the 12 apostles, they were this group of, of, of men who were radically different from each other. And we have multiple stories from the Gospels of them just not getting along with each other. Things like uh, you got this guy, Simon the Zealot, you got Matthew the tax collector, you got the sons of thunder, James and John, Thomas the doubter, you know, Peter who thinks a lot of himself, right? So this would be like having a, a member of Antifa and a MAGA hat wearing Trump supporter in the same small group. Like, it, it just, it, there would have been tension, there would have been disagreement, it would have come up, it probably got serious a few times. And yet, Jesus still put them together. Why? 
Probably lots of reasons we can't answer in this conversation, but I think at least one of the reasons why is that homogenous groups with people who are essentially the same, they don't actually produce transformation, they produce an echo chamber. And Jesus didn't want an echo chamber. He had a different goal. He wanted to train us and them to become like him. So the tax collector who got rich off of betraying his people to the Romans, man, that would be an opportunity for Simon and the others to practice love and forgiveness. And that's exactly what happened. And years later, they became brothers and companions who changed the world in just a couple of decades. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together writes this, God already has laid the only foundation for our community because God has united us in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into a common life with them. We enter into that life with other Christians, not as those who make demands, but as those who thankfully receive. We thank God for what he's done. Only God knows the real condition of either our community or our sanctification. What may appear weak and insignificant to us may be great and glorious to God. Amen. That's good stuff. And in my years as a pastor doing this kind of work, I've come to the conclusion that most of us in this room are really on board with this idea of devoting ourselves to one another in love. You want it. And you even understand that bigger point that we are being formed through that devotion to each other. The hang-up is that we have the aspirational desire of devotion to a community of love, but we do not possess the skills of devotion to follow it through. We have the desire for it, but we do not have the skills of devotion to follow it through. So we need to develop the skills of devotion if we're going to be deeply formed. And we've seen this play out over the years in our Riverbend communities, the small groups of people that meet throughout the week um, as a part of the Riverbend community. And we're calling, inviting each of you to be a part of something like that here in the next few months. Every community has a form of a life cycle. And generally, people begin with like a lot of enthusiasm and excitement and optimism. They say things like, man, these people are amazing. We get along great. The Sunday vibes are pretty cool. The message on Sunday is usually pretty rich. The pastor's real and kind of makes fun of himself. It's like a good thing. And they're not trying to become like a mega church or anything like that. It's much more like boutique and niche, and we like that. And so now we're becoming a part of the community, and we join a community. But then a, a little while goes by, and, and something happens that doesn't meet the standard. And most of the time, to be clear, it's totally something completely legitimate. Some person in my community dominates the conversation, or someone fails to meet your expectation. I thought we were going to be checking in all the time. We only check in like once a week, if that. Personalities aren't really gelling right. Some people want to sit around and pray the whole time. Other people want to take volunteer shifts at Shepherd's House or whatever. A couple in the community are going through a really hard time or marriage crisis, and it's heavy. Someone loses their job, and they have a lot of needs. Sometimes there's gossip and slander. Other times, someone's childhood trauma or attachment issues are playing out within the group, and the list goes on and on. We've heard all of these stories and, and many more. And this is what we call the disillusionment phase. And it happens in every single community where people aren't drinking Kool-Aid. It happens in every community. Why does every community have this problem? Because people, 
Because people are the primary ingredient to a community. It's made up of people like you and me. We're not fully formed. We're still in process. Jean Venier writes this, Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel that they are surrounded by saints, heroes, or at the least, the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. And at this point, we all have a decision to make. Do we choose to forgive and honor our commitment, or do we take offense? And by take offense, I don't necessarily mean we storm out. I just mean that we start making judgments in our hearts about the people in our community. Ah, these are just not really the kind of community that I want They're not my kind of people. They're not what I'm looking for. They're not smart enough or mature enough or diverse enough. Or they're not on trend with the things that I really care about or the books that I'm reading. Or they're not paying attention to my felt needs or the things that I think are important or fill in the blank. Again, all things I've heard many, many times before. And over time, this leads to a withdrawal from the community. We withdraw. And sometimes people go bitter and leave all at once, but most of the time it's actually much more gradual than that. You just start to feel people's disappointment and maybe some passive-aggressive comments or something like that. And this is also when people often revert back to objections to commitment by reasons of convenience. Like, oh, you know, work is really picking up, and so, I don't know, you'll just see me when, you'll see, me when I see you, or whatever, that kind of thing. And not right away, but eventually people leave. And sometimes people don't ever actually officially leave. They just kind of resign to real relationships and pop back in from time to time when it works for them. Now, again, I said this at the beginning, but please hear me. I'd say none of this to offend you, and I promise I'm not talking about anybody specific. I'm just talking about our culture at large. This is kind of how we do relationships. And I promise that I'm not cynical towards people. I'm not cynical towards community. I'm not cynical when people leave Riverbend over reasons like this. In fact, I've done stuff like this too. I'm just pointing out a cultural ideology that affects how we devote ourselves to one another. And of course, let me just validate that there are many good reasons that you might leave a church or a community. Here's, I think, like a good rule of thumb for that. When things are toxic, it's time to leave so that you can flourish. When things are flawed, it's normal, and you should probably stay. And if you're the one who sees the flaw, then you're probably the one that God is asking to help fill the need. But pray for grace, because you're not fully formed yet either. And so you probably are going to be flawed in your own way. Now, again, the reason I say this is because the messy, flawed community is the exact place, the exact right soil where God wants to address the gaps in your discipleship to Jesus. You're not doing anyone a favor by sticking around when you're disillusioned. I mean, you are, but that's not the point. The point is you're allowing God to form you deep within your heart by staying in a flawed community. And as an idealistic personality, I can say this because I have opinions about absolutely everything. And when my family or my community doesn't do the thing that I want, nine nine times out of ten, it ends up being really good for me. Through prayer and meditation on scripture and things like that, it's revealed that God just wants to teach me acceptance and how to deal with what's in my heart when I'm not in control of stuff. And it turns out that that's exactly what needs to be retrained and reformed in my heart as an idealist. The other time out of 10, my community or my family will eventually compromise and I get my way, which is great. But either way, 
not after I've had the opportunity to practice patience. So it's win-win. It's all good. When we withdraw, we miss out on the opportunity to grow. And the final phase of the cycle is starting over someplace else in a different church or a different community in the church. And in my humble opinion, it becomes just a vicious cycle that eventually leads to a withdrawal from the Christian community altogether. Because every time you withdraw, assuming the other people were the problem, you come to the next community with less energy, less excitement, and you end up being more particular of people and more nitpicky. It can't be like that. It can't be like that. It can't be like that. And just like a tree whose roots have never grown deep, when it gets transplanted again, the next bit of soil that it's planted in has to be just perfect in order for it to survive. Or it's just a faulty premise to begin with. We've seen a completely different cycle of community that goes very differently. And it starts out the exact same with a season of excitement and then eventually disillusionment. The honeymoon is over. And just like in the previous cycle, you have a decision to make. Will you take offense and withdraw? Or will you choose to forgive the people in your community for not being God? And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. On the cross, while being mocked and spat on and brutally executed, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Henry Nouwen writes this, The interesting thing is that when you can forgive people for not being God, then you can celebrate that they are a reflection of God. Come on, that's good. You are not a flawless representation of Christ, but I see him in you. And hopefully you can see him in me too. So the skill of devotion begins with forgiveness. The skill of devotion begins with forgiveness and your faithful presence in a flawed community. After Peter betrayed Jesus three times on Good Friday, Jesus made him breakfast and they worked through their problems. That's a pretty rad thing that Jesus did. So when we cultivate the skill of devotion by staying in a flawed community, we are formed into people of love. That's the last stage. Jean Venere goes on. If people manage to get through the second period, they come to a third phase, that of realism and of true commitment. They no longer see the other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, and each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but firmly planted on earth, and they're ready to walk in it and with it, and they accept the community and the other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. And I can just personally testify to this, that we, Grace and I, have experienced this kind of community here in Bend with some of you. Grace and I have been living in community for the last seven years, and the community has grown and shrunk and taken on different forms over the last seven years, but essentially the, the, the main core couples have stayed the same. And we place equal priority on being present at our Thursday meal as we do being here on Sundays, which is saying a lot because I'm here all the time for work. And it's very ordinary. There's nothing transcendent about what happens on Thursday nights other than the fact that we've made a promise to each other that the culture would never make to one another. And those relationships have become absolutely essential brother-sister relationships for me. For example, a couple of weeks ago, on a Thursday night, I was having like one of the worst weeks I've had in a really long time. And I was feeling a lot of pressure at work and feeling kind of taken advantage of, mistreated. 
And uh, the following morning, I had a 5 a.m. flight. I was going on a work trip. I had to teach the following day, so there's a lot going on. But we're devoted to community, and it's at my house. So we're going. It's happening. And I was driving home from church, and, and I made it just like minutes in time before everybody arrived. And Grace was there cooking dinner for everybody and being her amazing self. And uh, I hadn't really, this is kind of my pattern, I hadn't really been paying attention to how I was feeling. I was just operating on autopilot. Anybody else? No, just me? All right, okay, a few. At least a few hands went up. That, that's good. And so all of a sudden, as people were walking into our house, I realized, that's when I realized, oh gosh, I am running on empty. And normally I'm hosting and guiding conversation and leading times of prayer, but this time I just didn't have the energy for it. And so instead, I spent the night mainly listening and finding excuses to go to the fridge. Like my other introverts, we do that sometimes. And then I was just like waiting on other people to lead. And normally I know that I contribute and I bring something to our weekly meal. But this week I know I was a drain. I was a draw on everyone just because of my energy. And eventually Malia, one of my dear friends in our community, asked how I was doing. And I gave them the real answer. And it was a lot of like self-pity and frustration and nothing I'm proud of. But I didn't tie a bow at the end, like, you know, it's all going to be good, God is great, and it's awesome. I just said, like, this week kind of sucked for me. And initially, people looked kind of surprised, because that is not my norm at all. They're like, oh no, is dad going to cry? Like, is everything okay? <laughs> but then they did what they know to do. They, they prayed for me. And, and because they know me so well, I've shared seven years in a row of weekly meals and sharing they know what my internal script sounds like they know what my brokenness is and they know how to care for me really well and so they did and they prayed with me and cared for me it was amazing the following week I was feeling pretty bad about how I had handled the situation not because I think we should hide how we're actually feeling but because I was afraid I was just kind of grumpy to them and I wasn't present to them. I was only thinking about myself. And so I apologized. Hey, sorry for last week. You know, I was a little bit off. And Malia cut me off mid-apology and was like, hey, you don't have to apologize. Like, that's just what you were going through. You had a hard week. I'm just really glad that you shared with us. And for her, it was just a really simple comment that I know she meant. It was really sincere. Um, but for me, it was like, it was actually healing. It was something I really needed to hear because I know most of my relationships are not like that. I can't count on my neighbors or my casual friends to notice my bad mood and like stop their life to turn it around for me. Now, keep in mind, I've already said, I think we need to be kind to all people and we need to be invested in our friends, but even Jesus honored his limits as a human being. He couldn't make everyone's day all the time. That's just not how it works. But there is a really small group of people who I have made a promise to, and they have made a promise to me that when I am struggling, they will accept the burden of my problems, and they will be the love of Christ to me. And they were. So the risk of devotion and the investment of time seven years in is paying rich returns for me personally right now that I'm convinced you cannot get day trading in relationships. Lewis Meads writes this, when you make a promise, you tie yourself to the other persons by unseen fibers of loyalty. You agree to stick with people you're stuck with. When everyone tells them they can count on nothing, they can count on you. When they do not have the faintest notion of what in the world is going on around them, they will know that you are going to be there with them. You have created a small sanctuary of trust 
within the jungle of unpredictability. You have made a promise that you intend to keep. So you cannot have dinner with everyone every week and share life and pray. You can't. But you can make that promise to a few people. A few people, I'm not saying to curate it, I'm saying let Jesus curate it for you. And over time, that community becomes a sanctuary of trust and some annoying stuff too, that's part of it. But in our lived experience, that's the thing that has formed us more than anything to become a person of love, way more than all of the books that I have read on the theory of community, and I've read a lot of them. So as we end, I just want to end with four shifts to become a community of formation and devotion. And again, this is coming from our premise that we can't just copy-paste Jesus' vision on top of our existing paradigms. We need Jesus to, over time, progressively replace our individualism with his vision, which is one of a common life. So here are the four shifts, very quickly. Number one, the first shift is from a preference-based to a commitment-based community. One time, I kid you not, I had someone send me a text of a photo of their journal after one of our gatherings, and in it he wrote this, the way he closes his eyes while he prays is annoying and distracting. (laughs) And I was like, um, you're kidding, right? Like, Like, I thought, of course he was joking, and he assured me he was not joking. He wanted me to know that he found the way I closed my eyes very annoying. And listen, I don't expect to get all five-star reviews. Like, I don't even give myself five-star reviews, okay? But this community is not built around people's preferences. It's just not supposed to be that, right? Missiologist Michael Frost is famous for saying, the church is not a cruise ship that's giving you a tour of the Bahamas. It's an aircraft carrier on a mission to spread the kingdom of Jesus. So we are honored to serve you. I will do it till my dying day, but don't expect a Mai Tai. Like, this is not what we're about. It's not about consumer preference. Now you guys are just thinking about, how does he close his eyes when he prays? (laughs) And wouldn't that be such a beautiful thing to be known for? Man, that Riverbend church is not fancy. It's not showy. Man, the pastor closes his eyes weird. But man, they are committed to each other and they're committed to Jesus. That's what I want to be known for. Who cares about how my eyes look when I'm up here? (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, the second shift. Actually, I just had this recurring memory. Like, I used to get made fun of for the shape of my eyes in grade school. So that is actually a trigger for me. (laughs) Anyways, grace to that man. He's a good dude. I love him to death. Okay, shift number two. We need to shift from an opinion-based community to a practice-based community. A lot of Christian small group gatherings are just purely opinion-based. We get together and we talk about what we did or did not like about other Christian gatherings that we attended or books that we've read. And opinions are fine. Remember, I have one on every topic imaginable. But they don't transform you into the image of Christ. They don't transform me into the image of Christ. Only practicing the way of Jesus together will do that. And the early church, for all of its faults, was known for being devoted. That's what they were known for, being devoted to practices, teaching, prayer, fellowship, the Lord's table, generosity, hospitality, and the work of the Holy Spirit. 
And these are the things that we want to be known for, not making our opinions known, but being people who practice the way of Jesus. So as we take an intentional shift in the coming year in our communities, we will be emphasizing practicing the lifestyle of Jesus. Again, things like Sabbath and generosity, solitude, fasting, stuff like that. You're going to hear a lot more from me about that. We're also going to be encouraging a shared rhythm of life that we're going to talk a lot more about in 2024. The third shift is a shift from a transient to a stable community. So we realize not all of you will be living in Bend forever, and there are lots of reasons why this might not be the best church for you to stay at for a lifetime, and we understand that. And to be crystal clear, we do not want to try and control how much you come to church or attend church or whatever, and we definitely don't think that you owe us anything. You don't owe us anything. However, if you want to grow mature in your discipleship to Jesus, you need to plant your roots deep into the soil of a flawed community. And this is a flawed community. And you probably already know what those flaws are. But abiding with us, you can be part of us becoming whole and you becoming whole in the process as well. The desert fathers and mothers had a practice that they called stability. And St. Benedict, one of the desert fathers, defined stability in this way. It's the spiritual skill of staying put to get somewhere. Spiritual skill of staying put to get somewhere. And still today, there are many communities, communities of monks and nuns primarily in the Catholic tradition, who take a vow of stability. And here, for example, I found one uh, of, um, that comes from a community of nuns at Our Lady of the Mississippi Abbey. And this is what the vow is. We vow to remain all of our life within our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together, and we give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself, and the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. So this means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences, and forgiving. I think this is exactly what we need in order to learn skills of devotion. Now, of course, we're not asking you to take a vow of stability necessarily, right? No blood packs or Kool-Aid drinking here in this church, okay? But we do want you to prayerfully consider how you're moving around and exercising your freedom to do whatever you want might actually affect the quality of your commitments and the strengths of your bonds here in the community of faith. And how might that be affecting your flourishing on the whole? And what might happen or who might you become when you are consistent and give your faithful presence to the believing community? The fourth and final shift is from attending corporate gatherings to sharing a common life. It doesn't matter how good the preaching is. No 90-minute event on Sunday is a complete way of addressing your interior life with God. And don't trust anyone who tells you otherwise. We think attending these gatherings are absolutely essential to your growth, but they're not the only thing that's necessary for you to become mature in Christ. So what if instead of looking at church attendance as like the primary act of Christian affiliation, we looked at devotion to sharing life with a small group of people instead? Like the 12 guys who were stuck with each other. If they wanted to get close with Jesus, they were stuck with each other. And that's what they did. And they ended up becoming companions for life who changed the world. I want to leave you uh, with a signature story from church history. The most influential 
Christian revival of the last 500 years almost didn't happen. Count Zinzendorf was an, an aristocrat turned philanthropist and theologian, and he had opened up a, his property uh, to Moravian refugees who were fleeing persecution from their home country. And he founded a little community of Jesus followers in Hernhut. It's a little town you can still visit there today, and it was great. Until profound disagreement broke out and threatened to break up the church and destroy the movement. Zinzendorf was being villainized. He was being called a heretic and things like that. And it could have just ended there, and we wouldn't even know this story with him sort of throwing people off of his property. But instead, he went from house to house and listened in love to the people who were disillusioned with him and his leadership. And he wouldn't give up the vision that Jesus gave us to love one another deeply from the heart. And he got together with everyone, including the people who were calling him a heretic, and they wrote what's now known as the Brotherly Agreement in, in May of 1727. And it was a covenant that they signed together, and I just want to read a short excerpt from it. He says, We will be eager to maintain the unity of the church, realizing that God has called us from many and varied backgrounds. We recognize the possibility of disagreements or differences. Often these differences enrich the church, but sometimes they divide. And we consider it to be our responsibility to demonstrate within the congregational life the unity and togetherness created by God who made us one. How well we accomplish this will be a witness to our community as to the validity of our faith. And they went from signing that covenant agreement straight to the little prayer house in Hernhut, and they didn't stop the prayer meeting for over a hundred years. That prayer meeting launched the Moravian Revival, you've heard me talk about, and it inspired every single Great Awakening ever since. The 24-7 prayer movement that we're a part of today started after Pete Gregg took a trip to Hernhut and was inspired by the prayer house. That's where the idea for 24-7 prayer, and the movement that it is today, how, where it came from. It came from Zinzendorf and that community who signed the, the Brotherly Agreement. And now that movement has spread over to 100 countries across the world. This is what I leave you with. It almost didn't happen. It almost didn't happen because of the temptation to withdraw and start over with different people. It happened because they forgave each other for not being God, and they stayed. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father, we just come before you with gratitude in our hearts. That Jesus, you have forgiven us for not being God. Maybe we weren't at the foot of the cross mocking and spitting at you, but we needed you to go there on our behalf to forgive us of sin and make things right with God and you. And we know that this is eternal life, that we may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom the Father sent. And so we just come to you as people who want to learn these skills of devotion want to go through these cultural shifts that we would actually develop not just the desire and longing, but the actual practical skill required to stay and to be fully formed, mature in our discipleship to Jesus. Help us with stability, God. Help us with commitment. Help us with this longing to practice your way and not just pontificate about it with all of our varied opinions. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come now in the power of your spirit 
And would you begin to convict our hearts of people you may want us to reconcile with, to forgive? When we were praying before the gathering, uh, one of the brothers uh, had no idea what we were going to be talking about today, but the word that came to his mind during listening prayer was reconciliation. And I just can't help but wonder in a conversation like this, I probably, you know, maybe said a few things that maybe sting a little bit. Hopefully you hear them coming from a place of love. But maybe there's that one person or a group of people that you are at odds with. We're sort of resigned to real relationship with them and there's like a soft quitting going on of some kind. Notice that as just being a cultural stream thing, something that happens all the time in our society. But it's not the way of Jesus. And you may not be able to control reconciliation. Reconciliation requires both people coming to the table, so you may not be able to control that, but you can forgive. You can forgive. And that forgiveness will release you from the feelings of animosity and resentment and hurt and pain. And so we just encourage you to do that now in the name of Jesus. God, I release that person for how they wronged me. God, I pray that you would deal with that person according to how you see fit. I pray that you would cleanse my heart of the resentment and anger and the hurt feelings that I have and you would replace those feelings with a sense of agape and a sense of love and commitment to them. Would you help me with that, God? Help Andrew Rothrock with that, but also help this community with that. And Lord, we just pray for reconciliation to be possible those who we have broken relationship with. We know it's your heart, Lord. We know that you want to redeem broken things, restore things that are not right. That's your way. So we just plead and ask in the name of Jesus, would you do that? Forgive us, God, where we've maybe been elitist. We've wanted to curate our own little community and we've been super particular and judgmental of people's things for not being the way we want them to be. Relationships of agape are not relationships of utility. And so God, we just turn to you and ask for your help with that as well. Holy Spirit, come. So church, as we move into this next moment, this next rhythm of worship, we're coming to the tables of communion where we remember the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross for us. So during this uh, next song, come forward, grab the bread and cup, and then go back to your seat. We'll take it together all as one church. And then let's just turn our, our voices and our hearts in uh, praise and worship of King Jesus.